0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The horse is an important symbol in India's culture, as shown by the many stories and works we see of Indian royalty and adventurers on horseback. As noted by the Mughal chronicler, Abu Fazl, the horse is a means of attaining personal excellence. Yet the horse isn't native to India, with thousands of horses imported from Central Asia and the Middle East to meet the demands of India's riders. Yajyasha Swini Chandras' The Tale of the Horse, A History of India on Horseback, published by Pan Macmillan India, uses the horse as a way to discuss and frame India's history. The book covers caravan trade routes, the Mughal Empire, the Rajput horse warriors, and other stories to outline how India's politics and economics changed throughout history. Yasha Swini Chandra has a PhD in history of art from Soas University of London, where she was also a teaching fellow. She has been visiting faculty at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and Ashoka University, Sonipat. She worked for Sahapedia, an open online resource on the arts, cultures, and histories of India for many years, managing the multi-volume documentation of the President's House in New Delhi and an institutional collaboration with Rupayan, Sanstan, in Jodhpur. She previously quoted Right of the Line, the President's Bodyguard, on the household cavalry of the Indian Head of State. Yashaswini Chandra is also an avid horsewoman. We're joined again today by David Chaffetz, a regular contributor to the Asian Review of Books and the author of Three Asian Divas: Women, Art, and Culture in Shiraz, Delhi, and Yangzhou. Today, the three of us will talk about the central role the horse plays in Indian history and how understanding the horse may help us to understand the power structures of the subcontinent. So, Yasha Swinney, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, perhaps it's best to start with perhaps it's best to start with a, with a big picture question. Uh, why use the horse as a framing device to understand India's history?
2: Well, um, in retrospect, it was an obvious connection for me to make, given my work as a historian and my passion for horses as an equestrian. I began thinking about the role of the horse in Indian history and didn't feel entirely satisfied with the modern scholarship on the subject, which in any case consisted of a few articles or references. There are, of course, exceptions. Because the tendency um, in these has been to view the horse as a commodity, it is it 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 can only become. I felt that um, yeah, the horse can only become a framing device if you are concerned with the multiple levels at which humans and horses interacted across class and gender. Um, It's only then that the centrality of the horse to Indian culture becomes apparent. And um, the impetus for me came when I was uh, when I was co-authoring and co-editing this volume on the household cavalry of the president of India. Even in this present day context within this bubble, I mean, the central ethos of that regiment was is the bond between um, the horses and the men. And I thought it would be very interesting to trace that bond, that partnership um, across time and space in the context of the subcontinent. So I think that's where I came from.
3: Yes, yeah, Sir Sweeney, um, it's a great book. It's a great read.
2: Thank you. And
3: um, it sounds like you had a lot of fun writing this book. I
2: did. I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, but it was a, it was, it was quite a gigantic task by the end of it, because while there was very little dedicated literature, the horse was almost everywhere. You know, and um, yeah, so there was a lot of material to go through, and um, but yes, I did have a lot of fun.
3: Sure, that's a lot of material to go through because you cover almost three thousand years of history in this book. Um, why don't you start us at the beginning and tell us how did the horse get to India in the begin with? To begin with, and what influence did the introduction of the horse have in India?
2: Well, the book is concerned. Um, the book is. While it traces um, the history of the horse in India from the beginning until about the colonial period, the focus is very much on the later medieval, early modern periods. Um, also, there's quite a bit of the colonial period, but I mean, yeah, it. I think it's very important to um, start on that note that the horse was not. Um, I mean, the horse was not native to India. The um, the Indian you know, sort of the Indian population of horses disappeared by 8,000 BCE. Thereafter, there's very little evidence of the horse being widely available or domesticated from the Bronze Age, Harappan or Indus Valley civilization. And in contrast to that, suddenly from about the 1500 BCE, there's more and more evidence of the horse becoming quite important in India. So, I mean, it's sort of, it's the obvious connection to make because that corresponded with the coming of the Indo-Aryans. So, I mean, that's, how, that's what it is related to. There are two, um, Nicholas pointed out that um, horses were important, imported in very large numbers from uh, the Middle East by sea and from Central Asia and also Tibet through overland routes. And there are, in fact, two wonderful uh, myths of origin. One is concerned with the emergence of the horse, the primeval horse Uchai Shravas, from the sea after it was the cosmic ocean after it was churned by the gods and the anti-gods. Then there's um, another there's another legend about horses being celestial, winged beings, and they lost their wings after you know after an ancient sage cast a spell and Indra, the king of gods, banished them to earth. And these two myths are very evocative of, um, you know, the, the fact that horses were imported by sea and they were imported through caravan routes. But also, I think it's very important to remember that over time, horses began to be bred in India and quite a few local breeds developed, uh, you know, quite a few uh, local breeds of horses were developed in India. I mean, the scale of the trade in horses was so enormous um, and it would have provided such a spectacle and there are so many references to it. I think we tend to forget that horses also began to be bred in India. So, And obviously, I can't overstate the significance of the horse across different branches of Indian history, the political, the social, the economic, the emotional, war and trade, of course, but also art, religion, sports. And it was very important for me, I think, to bring out to write a sort of an integrated, a comprehensive history of the role of the horse.
3: Yes, see, you 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 bring out the fact that the horse has a multifaceted importance for the Indians. It permeates religion, it permeates art. With Absolutely. your background in art historia in art history, you really bring that out. But um, why do you suppose the horse had such an outsized cultural role? We don't don't see the horse having such an important role, for example, in Europe. Why in, in India does it become so central?
2: I mean, um, th- th- that's interesting for me to hear that it didn't have quite the same impact in Europe because I think the major difference between India and Europe is that the horse was never used in agriculture in the subcontinent.
3: Mm. But, yeah,
2: Yeah, and which is why the horse has carried an elitist connotation. Um, but um, I mean, I think there was for many millenniums across the world, or at least many parts of the horse or, or many parts of the world, the horse was quite important. I mean, it was the age of cavalry warfare, which is why, you know, historians have even depicted those that long period as the age of the horse. Um So I'm not sure that it had. I would have thought that it had about the same impact, um, with the exception of, with the exception of agriculture. But you know, uh, it's important to remember that from at least 1500 BCE, increasing numbers of horses were available in um, the subcontinent, and to begin with, they were quite integral to Indo-Aryan culture. The horse and you know, the horse-drawn chariot. And thereafter, by the 11th, 12th centuries, the cavalry emerged as, you know, the central arm of most Indian armies. Mm. So, um, you know, in the Indian subcontinent experienced an age of cavalry warfare, an age of the horse. And thereafter, because it got so closely associated with uh, kings and emperors and rulers, I think it also became a bit of an elite animal that, added to its aura. And yeah, it seems to have just captured the imagination in India, even though it was not native to India.
3: Very interesting. And so it, it became a symbol of power and it underpinned the the rulers of India, the Mughals, um, the Sultanate, and so forth. Um, but in your book you also talked about the fact that it also that it provided an avenue for for some of the um lower classes to to seize power and to move up the social scale. So it's kind of a, a transgressive animal for some people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you see, the thing is that we know or we can imagine that a lot of elite warrior identities um, sort of uh, were formed around the horse. You know, the rise of the Rajput, Rajputs of Rajasthan, for example, um, the rise of the Rajputs, then the the, the military bureaucratic system of the Mughals. I mean, these were all very horse-oriented. But a lot of lower status identities were also forming around the horse. So certain identities around different classes of grooms, for example, or farriers, and then, you know, traders, because the horse was such a coveted item of trade and because there was such tremendous demand for it. A lot of horse traders, horse trading groups could rise to power. Um, could rise to power, and um, you know, a lot of for them, for a lot of them, tra- trading in horses, soldiering went hand in hand, and they exercised tremendous clout, which is why at least two Delhi Sultanate dynasties. So this is uh, the Lo- the su the Lodi dynasty and the su dynasties. They, they're, you know. They had a horse trading background. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's so much talk about the Afghanistan these days and Afghanistan being the graveyard of empires.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Fact of the matter is that once upon a time, the you know, Afghanistan was the launching pad for a number of empires. And the Afghan corridor was quite important. The Afghan corridor, Afghan markets, um, it sort of linked... Um, they linked Central Asia and South Asia. Horses from Central Asia were imported into India through the Afghan corridor. Afghan horse traders were at the forefront of this trade. A lot of them rose to very um, you know were able to establish themselves in India and rise to power. So I mean, yeah, I brought out all those other facets as well.
3: yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned Afghanistan in that in that connection because today it's very hard for us to imagine. Afghanistan as a powerful and influential player in the region, but of course, when horsepower was important, Afghanistan was a very wealthy middleman uh,
0: yeah, trading absolutely. between
3: central asia and and India. and as you say, many Afghans parleyed their participation in the horse trade to become rulers in delhi and and further south. Um, yeah, so Afghanistan true. and India had this very tight relationship for several centuries.
2: And, I mean, um, I think that that, sorry, um, if I can just complete that yeah. of thought, I mean, all of that begins to change in the colonial period because Afghanistan becomes marginalized. I mean, the nature of globalization was such that Afghanistan stopped to matter as a corridor, as a market. The taste for horses in India changed, changed, became Europeanized, you know, and mm. then there was a lot of wariness of Afghan's um, um, you know, in the colonial imagination. So even sort of the age-old patterns of migrations by which Afghan traders and mercenaries used to migrate to India or look for opportunities in India, all of that was curtailed and curbed quite vehemently by right. the by the colonial authorities. So that really sort of, that was the beginning of the change, you know, that was the beginning of um, the change in the perception of Afghanistan and in the... The nature of Afghanistan really.
3: Sure. Um, turning a bit further south, one of the interesting uh, groups in India to have mobilized horsepower were the Marathas, obviously. And they yeah. fall into the category of people you mentioned as using the horse to further their social and, and political ascendance. Um, it, can you say something about the kinds of horses that the Marathas were able to, to breed versus these big, powerful horses from Afghanistan? And, and how did that How did the horses themselves change the power play between the Northerners and the Southerners?
2: I mean, to begin with, um, none of the horses were big in the sense that horses are big now. You know, Mm. over years, in recent times, you know, um, horses have been bred in a certain way. So, you know, even in the European context, even in sort of the medieval, early modern European context, Most of the horses that were used were were actually quite small by today's standards. And in the case of the Marathas, I'm glad you brought them up because they actually started, they actually rose to prominence, practicing, breeding their own horses and practicing, um, you know, a certain set of battle tactics. And this was a homegrown body of horses. These were the horses, the so-called Deccani or Bhima horses, which were bred in um, sort of, which were raised in different river valleys of the Deccan, of the northwestern, of northwest, of the northwestern Deccan, and um, you know they were sort of quite quick. They were small and quick, and um, you know they enabled the mobility for which the Maratha light cavalry became famous. And while the Mughal army, you know, consisted of these like vast armies, you know, camp followers. Um, Practically, cities on the move. On the move, this um, the these Maratha bands were quite quick, and they would sort of like harass and provoke the Mughal army to chase after them. They would ret- retreat into their mountain strongholds. They would, ha- you know, they would cut off supply lines. So they pa- practiced certain guerrilla tactics, which really worked, and so they could mount a challenge, a very serious challenge to. The Mughals, based on the kind of horses they rode and the manner in you know in which they um, the, the back, battle tactics they practiced,
3: and as and you emphasize the fact that they bred their own horses, which partly offsets the, the view that there are no hor- good horses in India. Um,
2: yeah, you, no, that you... that, that, uh, that is a problematic view because um, you know foreign horses, imported horses, were considered far more prestigious. The Mughals, mm. for example, even in the case of the Mughal army, um, the largest number of horses that were required, that were imported for the Mughal army, was horses from Central Asia. But it's the Arab Persian horses which were considered most prestigious. You know, they were the mounts of kings and emperors and generals. Mm. Um, but the second largest consist, the second largest contingent of horses uh, ridden by the rank and file of the Mughal army was a body of Indian horses. Mm.
3: So, 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 is there any what? What do you think made people uh, pay more money for horses from Central Asia, and even more money for horses from uh, Persian Gulf? What What made those horses more attractive in the eyes of the of the the princes and the rajas and stuff compared to um, the the Marwari horse or the or the um, horse?
2: No, but like for example, the Rajputs became quite attached to the horses that they began to breed. Um, you know, sort of the ancestors of the Marwari or the Kathiawari horses. Um, And similarly, the Marathas were very devoted to, um, you know, their Deccani Bhima horses. They swore by them. They are the ones that they preferred. I think it has to do with um, sort of an elitist preference. I mean, for the Mughals, of course, Central Asian horses were, um, you know, considering their origins in Central Asia, Mm, I think mm, mm. An emotional attachment um and Arab and Persian horses, in any case, were considered very prestigious, even in Europe, you know lines of horses were improved, so to speak, um using these um arab Persian um, uh, you know breeding stock strains. Mm.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. So
3: so you think it was more a question of a mindset and a tradition rather than rather than anything you can concretely point to and say this is why these horses were preferred?
2: I think so. I think to a large extent um, that to a large extent it was a matter of mindset and also, you know, even today, like for example, a foreign imported car, especially in pre-liberalization India would be attached with power and prestige. And obviously that would be far more expensive. So only a very small class of people would have been able to, um, you know,
3: afford those horses. So it was a marker of social distinction. Yes,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very much a marker of social distinction.
3: So, so given that we're leveling the play, playing field here between the Arabs, the Persians, the Turks and the Indians, do you have a favorite Indian breed?
2: Oh, that's a lovely question. Uh, well, um I'm quite fond of Himalayan, different breeds of Himalayan cobs. Oh, I mean no. all of them. Um they're sort of they they're they quite sturdy and sure footed and they can obviously take you take you to places in the Himalayas that nothing else can. Um the Manipuri pony is a national treasure. You know, uh, Polo, the modern game of polo was invented after a british colonists and tea, uh, british officials and tea planters watched Ma- Manipuri P- polo teams playing the sport obviously it was reinvented but that's where it began um then the marwari Kachi, sindhi Kathiawari horses um they are also quite uh, they're also quite wonderful i mean if you've ridden them they're quite a lot like arab horses so you know the, there's the there's that belief there are legends pertaining to the origins of these breeds of gujarat and rajasthan and sindh um, you know that th- they were bred from arab breeding stock uh, there are all these legends then uh, i know someone professor utpal tato at the indian institute of science at bangalore who's done genetic research on indian breeds and he confirms that in fact they were continuously bred until quite recently from arab stock mm. there are a they sort of their outline um their gate it's, it's quite reminiscent of Arab horses. And if you've ridden them, it, it, it's quite a similar experience. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's it's just, it's fabulous to be able to ride in a place like Rajasthan on a Marwari horse. You feel
0: very,
2: mm. it just makes you feel so much closer to the region and its history. But,
3: sure.
2: yeah, but you know, like I was talking about the Europeanization of the horse culture of India. If you have ridden in 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 the mainstream um, urban riding culture is such, I mean, that is the riding culture that I was used to, to begin with. You end up riding horses of European origin. You know, and you practice Christianism along European international lines. So, I mean, that, 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 the traditional horse culture of India is very much lost to that extent. I mean, you do see traces of it here and there, but it's not the the, the, the horses that are ridden in in mainstream urban settings are like thoroughbreds and warm bloods and horses of these kinds rather than, you know, the Indian breeds.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about breeds. Let's talk about, let's move on to gender for a second. And I want to start with horse gender. Um, can you say something about the preference for Indian riders over over history to ride mares or to ride stallions or to ride um, geldings?
2: Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think to begin with, there was, um, there was a preference for stallions, um, with, um, with the exception of the Rajputs, who seem to have been quite fond of mares all along. There are these wonderful legends and oral epics that I refer to throughout the book, uh, in the context of Rajasthan, in which these um, these these heroes, these Rajput heroes, become very attached to their mares. right? And in one case, the mayor is supposed to be the reincarnation of one of these heroes, Babuji's mother,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I think with the coming of the Muslims, uh, the 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 Preference was the the mayor also becomes quite important. Um, but in interestingly, in almost all equestrian paintings, the rulers are depicted sitting on stallions, that's quite apparent. So, um, you know, so the stallion to that extent continues to be pre- prestigious, mm. whether we're talking about whether we talk about Muslim courtly cultures or we talk about Hindu ones.
3: Um when when women rode horses, did they have a preference for riding mares or 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 even geldings which are in theory uh, gentler to ride?
2: oh geldings so geldings there was uh, it the there are references from the British period. there are colonial records in which the authorities are very much concerned with impressing upon. Um, Indian horse owners to geld their horses, you know, and it's not something that was practiced in India, it was not very, although there are references to geldings would have been available in India all along and there are references to geldings being imported, uh, some connivance on the hand, on the part of horse traders from the Middle East, you know, they would import, um, they would import geldings so that horse breeding couldn't really take off in India. Hmm um but you also have colonial period records there are very few paintings of geldings um I, and there are colonial period records in which the authorities are very much concerned that you know not enough horse owners are gelding their horses and horses would be so much easier to manage if they were gelded exactly
3: exactly yeah and and also and also you uh, when you have any kind of livestock population if you have lots and lots of stallions it's hard to, it, it's a problem
2: it becomes a problem yeah but um obviously there was never there were never enough horses in india i mean there uh, were horses weren't being raised in herds in india which is one of the major reasons why increasing numbers of horses had to be imported to india
3: constantly Ah, uh, yeah that's the point whereas yeah. in central asia the herds were enormous
2: oh they were enormous. so it
3: would have been totally impossible to keep lots and lots of stallions
2: yeah i mean at one point ibn batuta commented that horses are available here much like sheep are available in morocco exactly yeah
3: exactly yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, women, women yes
2: women are also very often depicted on stallions
3: wow okay yeah. so these women must have been pretty strong they would have been they would have been
2: and in interestingly, in India, women used to sit astride, so they didn't yes. ride side saddle as in Europe. I don't know how they managed their clothes, um, but they did. And um, there, there, there's there's this one beautiful painting from the Akbar Nama of the Mughal Emperor Akbar, one of the you know one of the two illustrated Akbar Namas. There's a painting of the Mughal Emperor Akbar receiving his mother. My entourage includes um uh, you know a group of female servants on horseback and they are wearing burqas so they're covered from head to toe there's just like a mesh screen for them to uh, so that they can see but otherwise you know they are managing to observe parda and yet be out and about in the open on their horses
3: yeah, that's a beautiful picture that you have reproduced in your in your book yes thank you um and and I and I had not seen that picture before it is a very interesting glimpse of the way the Mughal court was always on horseback but the difference between being in purda and not being in purda was still observed even when they were moving
2: Yeah you know there was um when I so there was um uh, Alexander I didn't include this in the book actually but Alexander Burns the East India Company official at one point came about you know came across a woman who managed to observe Parda and yet ride. And if I can just quote those lines, it's quite funny. Um, So he writes, One girl whom we saw on the road had a canopy of red cloth erected over her on horseback, which had a ludicrous appearance. It seemed to be a framework of wood, but as the cloth concealed everything, as well as the countenance of the fair lady, I did not discover the contrivance. So that's interesting.
3: He was very he was as interested in women as he was in horses. Yes, now. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. So how how do you compare the experience of the European women who were who were horsewomen in India with the uh, Indian women riders in India?
2: I don't know that much about the European context but I would think it's quite similar because you know elite women were taught to ride. And in the context of India, they, you know, they rode, there were they were obviously stables and grounds within the women's quarters. And it was also possible for them to go out and, you know, ride out in the open as long as they were properly covered. Um, but the the most, the sort of the highest of the high women, especially in formal procession, don't seem to have ridden they traveled in palanquins or in you know howdahs on elephant pack it's um, so even with even in even in this entourage of hamida begum akbar's mother it's the female servants who are riding but interestingly this one uh, european traveler peter munday uh, um, east india company merchant he commented at one point that women of lower classes rode rode on oxen whereas women of um the higher classes rode on rode you know horses so again that's the distinction
3: sure sure um i've got just one more question really um, no i have hundreds of questions but in the interest of time i have one more question um this is a great book i think it tells english indian history from a very unique perspective, uh, but sometimes it seems to stray a little bit from let's say, the official Indian history, the way it's being formulated today. Um, so has have, have the book been criticized in nationalist circles, or are people think it's a nice balance in the way you tell the story? Um,
2: well, unfortunately, the book fortunately, the book seems to have been quite well received. Um, and I've obviously been tried to be true to my sources, read them critically, you know, be quite balanced and fair in my assessment. And luckily, I suppose the horse can't be politicized that much, especially today. The cow continues to be relevant. So perhaps the cow can, so the cow is politicized. But uh, luckily that, you know, maybe I was on fairly safe ground with a subject like horses.
1: So I have one last question um, before we wrap up our interview. So obviously the world and India have moved to motorized transportation, motorized vehicles. Um, The horse is no longer uh, perhaps is central to transportation, to getting around. Um, It's perhaps changed even more into a status symbol in the modern day. But I guess kind of in modern India, um, I guess, how, how do you think the horse is seen today? And perhaps maybe have we lost something in, uh, in our shift to motorized transportation?
2: Um, So I think that's a very fitting note to end it on. Um, In, in the Indian context, I mean, the horse continues to be in the, you know, in the, modern indian context the horse continues to be a powerful symbol and we see that when you know dalit bridegrooms so bridegrooms of um you know of of lower castes are prevented in certain you know backward parts of north india from riding in their marriage processions on the horse uh, by sort of upper caste upper caste men right, so that 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 um uh, I mean, and so it becomes a very important it becomes a symbol of um you know caste mobility and the continued caste based prejudice and I think that is that 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 is a very important that is a very important note um in the history of the horse in India though there there has been a break um the traditional horse culture of India, I mean, there has been a bit of a break. I mean, when we see sort of cavalry units um riders of different cavalry units doing tent pegging or practicing such you know you know um, practicing equestrian sports that might have more of a basis a historical basis in India um Like I said, modern polo is a reinvention of um, you know Manipuri polo. Then the equestrian sports that are practiced in uh, mainstream urban horsey circles they consist consist of disciplines such as jumping or dressage or eventing, which are very much of European origin. I wish I wish like more and more local breeds became integrated in these cultures but in in this in this kind of um in this scene but I'm not sure if that's possible um yeah I mean okay I know I, you know when I was when I was co-authoring and co-editing the volume on the president's bodyguard I read some papers which pertained to a debate about what to do with the few horse- based cavalry units that remained and the 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 you know, there was a discussion about whether or not they should be mechanized, and um, I think it was finally decided. I think Nehru was part of that conversation. I think it was finally decided these cavalry regiments, these horse based regiments, should be allowed to continue because they are evocative of that historical link between horses and uh humans, and they are evoked and they they it these regiments in a way memorialize that association, that partnership. So yeah, I think it's difficult to imagine how important horses were, but it's worth remembering. So I think that is the note I would conclude on.
1: Well, and so that concludes our interview with Yasha Chandra, author of The Tale of the Horse, A History of India on Horseback. I do actually have one last question, um, the true last question, which is,, uh, where can people find your work, and what's next for you?
2: Oh, so um, the book is available is available uh, in South Asia. So I don't know if it's possible for viewers abroad to get a copy. Um, but it can be ordered on Amazon India. It's available in all major um, bookshops across uh, India. And What's next for me? Well, I'm writing a women's history of colonial India, so that's next, and that will be published um, internationally. So, yeah, I have a lot of work cut out for me.
1: Well, I look I look forward to hearing more about about your next work. Uh, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at you can you can follow me on Twitter at nickri gordon. That's n i c k r i g o r d o n. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia, that's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author reviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, the interview Books podcast may be found on all your favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for your interview with. Anthony J. Barbieri-Lowe, author of Ancient Egypt and Early China, State, Society, and Culture. But before then, thank you so much, Yashaswini, for joining us today.
2: Oh, I'm so glad. I'm delighted. Thank you for having me. This was such fun.